God, thanks for uh, this beautiful space. Thank you for the good people abroad. Uh, God, I am so in touch with um, the magnanimity of this subject and my inadequacy. Um, and so I, you know, to whatever degree this, this Lenten journey is spiritual warfare, uh, we ask you to fight for us. And I, I need, uh, I need, I need faith today to help me and help us to lay hold of what you have for us. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Uh, there is, um, if, if, yeah, it's kind of weird to uh, come in late and then have to walk to the front. I get it, but, um, and it's not, you guys are super late. It's just, you know, uh, there's so much to cover. This class could take eight hours today and we'd barely scratch the surface. I've had to winnow down what I want to share. Here's what you can expect from this morning. I know we had readings today. Um, I know they were, they were optional, but if I, I do want to chat about the things that grabbed you or struck you, questions you had, disagreements you had, uh, things that stirred you, etc. So there's going to be plenty of time for that. But I thought at the beginning I would do two things and try to do them quickly. One is to just set for us the table of how is money religious? How is it, how is it a spiritual thing? And two, uh, how do we worship it today? How, how is our economic order shaped for money to be worshipped? Does that make sense? Uh, I have caveat, the caveat, caveat that I am not an expert, really, about money. Just not. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today, uh, I just want to say, like, I'm happy to be wrong. Like, if I get some data wrong or some things wrong, just let me know. It's fine. But um, I, I am keenly learning and interested in the way that money sets up its power as a spiritual or religious entity in our world, right? And I think I get that because I'm a Christian. All right. First, um, how is it religious? How is money religious? Um, this could be an entire, uh, you could get a PhD in what I'm gonna say in one sentence. The confluence of, of factors in the last 500, 600 years, including the enlightenment, modernity, these are overlapping circles too, right? Secularism and liberalism slash neoliberalism. I'll say more about that in a bit. All of these forces have worked together to relegate what we think of as the religious sphere to the personal, private, interior, abstract, okay? So modernism, enlightenment, secularism, liberalism, neoliberalism have, uh, I, I don't wanna say conspired, I'm not sure it was an active agent, but all of these forces lead us, when we talk about spiritual, we're not usually referring to chairs and coats, right? When we talk about love, we're usually talking about something interior, something in our desires, something inside. And, and there's, I mean, liberalism, and part of the liberalism uh, that developed alongside capitalism, there was the separation of the religious 
private world from the public, state-controlled world. Separation of church and state is a big part of this. All right, so we all inherit an understanding of what religious means from these four, and there's more, like cultural factors. And so for us, religious then is personal, private, spiritual, and interior abstract. The issue with this is that it's not true. <laughs> Other than that, it's fine. <laughs> the issue is that Jesus, uh, when he speaks, and we'll, I'll say more about this in the sermon today, when he speaks about the, the world that he's laying claim to, he assumes it's communal and public and material and concrete. Of course, the communal includes the personal, right? Communal is made up of persons. The public involves private. The material is spiritual. And how we order our external life is, uh, in, influences our desires, right? So they're all connected. And one of the things we're going to do here in this work is to interrogate, I think, in a holy way, the, uh, some of the repercussions of having a secular, modern, enlightenment, neoliberal imagination for how we see our faith. Yeah? So then, um, how is money religious? Well, money, or I'll say mammon. Mammon is the Aramaic. Greek, Hebrew, it's an anglicized version of the word for money or wealth in those languages. So mammon then um, is a synonym for money. But money is more than just what you have in your wallet, as long as we're okay with using words, maybe not super precisely. Mammon shapes and orders our private and public life our interior and exterior world, our, our um, material, spiritual, everything. And, and, and so money's religious because it lays claims to that. Good Child, in your reading, we can talk more about this, goes, um, has an extended discussion on this in pages 12 and 13. And I won't get into it now, but it's, it's right there. There's like six of six ways that money has spectral power, he calls it. Divine power. You're reading from Herbert McCabe today, uh, and I'll preach about this a little later. He, he breaks it down, I think, in the, a little more like, good child is like PhD stuff. It's the hardest reading you'll have. McCabe is much more like, okay, yeah, I can read this. But he talks about that, um, that money makes religious claims by, by demanding our time, our attention, and our service. Those things. So that's how money is religious. We can say more about that, okay? We can get into that more and talk about the relationships between exterior systems and structures and interior desires because they're intimately linked, etc. All right, so then how, how do we worship? Well, the prevailing economic reality we live in could be described as neoliberal, Finance-driven capitalism, right? Neoliberal finance-driven capitalism. Uh, there's a lot of history to this that is in my notes. I'm probably not going to say unless you ask me about it. It's fascinating. But here's what happened. Basically, uh, and I'm getting some of this from, so 
I'm, I'm, I'm pulling from some other sources today. The Good Job book is here. There's a couple of books I'm pulling from. One is Catherine Tanner's Christianity and the New Spirit of Capitalism. It's a baller book. The other one is Rodney Clapp's Naming Neoliberalism, Exposing the Spirit of Our Age. I got a little Rodney Clapp in me. And then finally, there's a book by Noam Chomsky and Marv Waterstone called Consequences of Capitalism, Manufacturing Discontent and Resistance. Um, and then The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the weird book is interesting. Weird is an acronym, Western Educated Industrial Rich Democratic. And this is a, a anthropologist, sociologist, ethnographer who basically shows that those of us who live in neoliberal finance-driven capitalism are weird. We don't work like other humans work. It shapes our neurology and our psychology and our sociology. And we are the most peculiar humans who've ever lived. The problem he says in this book, and he unpacks how we got here and why we got here. The problem is 60 to 90% of all research studies are done on Western undergraduate students. So we've developed this entire compendium of what humans are like based upon a weird psychology that has a lot to do with, you know, modernity and neoliberalism and those kinds of things. So there's just so much going on. Anyway, what is finance-driven capitalism? Well, about late 70s, early 80s, people like tag this to like Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan getting elected in, in, their, in England and in the United States. Essentially, there was nowhere else for profits to be invested in from production. So I was raised, like capitalism is you create a product and you sell it. And whatever you create, whatever cost to create it and whatever you sell it for, that little margin there, that's your profit. That's how you make money, right? Well, um, finance-driven capitalism is, a, is in the last 40 years or so really coming into its hegemony. Um, and... Uh, what's happened is, and there's, we'll talk about how this was able to happen if you want, but now, now the primary way to make money isn't by making things to sell. Who knows what the primary way to make money is? Stock market, the secondary. So you make money as a business on money. So car companies, don't make money off selling cars. What do they make money off of? Car loans. Good Child talks about debt a lot, right? So the real money to be made from a company isn't what they produce, it's how much people believe they're worth. Talk about spectral power. Yeah. Uh, the real money to be made from a company isn't what they produce. It's not based upon their goods and services that they get compensated for. It's based, it's, it's, they make their real money based on how much you and I think they're worth and what we're willing to pay for their worth. But a, not real worth, a speculative future worth that may or may never come to be. Oh my gosh. You guys, when you begin to just open up the thing and those are like, this is a game. What, this is a game. All right. So, um, for instance, in goods and services capitalism, recession's bad. Nobody's got money to buy anything. You can't sell stuff. Business is closed. But in finance-driven capitalism, 
Recession's good. Why? People need loans. People need loans. And that's when we make all the money. So the CEO then, their, their primary goal in running a company in financial and capitalism isn't to their employees. And it isn't to the community or neighborhood that business exists in. And it's not even to their customers, whatever they're producing, whatever goods and services. They are beholden to the stockholders. So CEOs have one job, maxim, maximum profitability, shareholder value, measured quarterly. So all of these short little gambits and sprints, leveraging the future, who cares, for maximum profitability now. So over the long haul, this is, isn't good for the company sometimes. <laughs> um, yes, so that's, that's kind of the world we live in. Uh, yeah, Isaiah. I was going to say, it's not really maximum profitability. It's maximum potential profitability. Yeah, good. Thank like, you. Amazon has, like, was only profitable recently, right? Yes. So it's not about profitability. Yeah, so Isaiah said it's not about maximum profitability. It's about maximum potential profitability. All the CEOs need to do. Future. Yes. All they need to do is to convince Isaiah and Matt that potentially they will be profitable. And that we will leverage our capital to maybe benefit from that game. That's all. That's it. That's it. Yeah, good. All right, so that's finance-driven capitalism. We can say way more about it. We're going to keep moving. Um, so what is liberalism? So it's, this, is a, this is hard because in our, in our political imaginations, there's liberals and conservatives. Liberalism, I'll just say this, both liberals and conservatives are liberals. <laughs> It's one way to say this, okay? So I know we got to carve out like a new, and this is all about how to do worship money. We got to carve out a new kind of language inside of existing categories, so it can be tricky. Liberalism is this arrangement. It came out of, it came out of 14th and 15th century Catholic thinkers, and they were, they were trying to emphasize like the dignity and worth of every person and people's right to agency and authority. So there was Catholic moral teaching that brought that, that people who kind of brought liberalism into like the mainstream guys like Adam Smith and other people, like they're drawing on these Catholic moral theology. Um, but liberalism, essentially the state functions to coordinate individuals' rights. That's what the state does. Uh, the state protects and upholds the primacy of private property. This is a big commitment in liberalism. Um, it divides, like I said earlier, liberalism divides life, life into public and private spheres. So guess what goes in the private sphere? Religion. Property. State coordinates the public and communal sphere. So according to liberalism, uh, individuals exist for freedom, choice, autonomy, liberation from external authorities and constraints. Sound familiar? That's a defining ethos of our age, yeah? And there's a lot of actually really good things inherent in that. One of the things that Rodney Clapp argues in naming neoliberalism is that liberalism came up inside of a Christian story. And then what happened over some centuries is that the Christian story got relegated to the private sphere and the free market took the place of the Christian story. And now we understand freedom not as some sort of Christian telos, but freedom as 
I get, I get to do with my desire what I want, right? All right, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna teach for like three or four more minutes, you guys, and then I'll, and then I'm gonna tap down. Um, so the problem liberalism is trying to solve is how to get individuals who are necessarily in conflict with each other to enter into a cooperative arrangement for their mutual self-interest. How do you do this? How do you do this? Well, praise be to mammon, we have the free market. The free market takes all these various self-interests into mutual self-interest of all. The desire, even avarice or greed, of individuals singly is blended in the free market, resulting in a greater good for all. Stanley Howarth says this, liberalism became a self-fulfilling prophecy, a social order designed to work on the presumption that people are self-interested. It tends to produce those kinds of people. So the highest achievement of an individual in liberalism is to be freed from constraint, to do what they want, to enjoy their rights and freedoms. Um, this is one of the reasons why I was so adamant that that kind of language around whether I wear a mask is not Christian. Because I'm, I'm trying to learn about the, the, the things that live in my bones and, and figure out where they came from, right? And I would just hold out to us that there is two, two things are true. All of us have dignity and worth as humans and we, we need to honor each other's individual agency and autonomy and this glorification of my right and freedom to do what I want with my choices is sub-Christian. Both of those are true, I think. I would just submit to you. All right, so then what is neoliberalism? And, and neo is new, right? This is from the 80s, like finance-driven capitalism. So it's a new era of heightened capitalism. So the market is no longer, the economy is no longer a facet of society, but the market is, has taken over how we think and move and live and have our being, essentially. Um, yeah, gosh, how, how, do I, how do we talk about this? So no longer is the economy part of our lives, but the, we, we, our social order is arranged by economics usually in ways that live in our bodies, like why am I so mad that I have to wear a mask? I don't know, but I'm mad. You know what I'm saying? Uh, all right, some aspects. Unfettered free trade and globalization, World Trade Organization, NAFTA. Privatization of public services, use it to the lowest bidder. So public services are now private enterprise. Education, healthcare, prisons, airlines, telecommunications, finance, banking. Um, you model government agencies off of corporate or bureaucracies. Deregulation of finance, calling it modernization. Liberating corporations from stifling restrictions on their freedom to invest and often to pollute, exploit. Um, Reagan reduced the top marginal tax rate from 70 to 28%. Clinton did welfare reform, which just meant slash it. NAFTA repealed the, uh, the Gulf-Steagall Act, which in 1933 had served to enforce the separation of commercial banking and speculative investment so that banks couldn't gamble on customer savings. Clinton repealed that. World Trade Organization, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, 
These are all set up to coordinate this modern finance-driven neoliberal capitalism. So neoliberalism, I wanna just, I'll end with this. So it's important just to maybe name like Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Bush, they're all neoliberals. They're all neoliberals. There's very little difference in how they and how they function inside of our economy, right? Now there's, their policies have big differences for individual groups of people, but in terms of how they look at money and the world and this stuff. So I'll finish with this. Neoliberalism serves the interest of private property owners, businesses, multinational corporations, and financiers. Neo, this is Ronnie Clapp. Neoliberalism can be characterized as the Marxism of the ruling classes. Another way to say this, Soviet Russia and China, the bad guys, are state, there is the state works to keep the state in charge of capital. But in neoliberalistic Western places like the US, the state works to keep corporations and ruling wealthy people in charge of capital. All right. Let me pause there. I know that's a lot, you guys. I know that's a lot. And there's a lot of places we can go here. I'm resisting the urge to try to do too much work in the first week of our class because there's a heck of a lot more I wanna say. But I wanna hear from you all. Like what's stirring for you as I say this? What kinds of things is this pinging off of that you've read or you've been thinking about? Let's, let's open it up and have a larger conversation. Katie Fansler. Yeah. Yeah. Katie's asking, how does democracy and capitalism go together? Because they seem like polar opposites. I think it was a huge realization for me to, and I mean, we can talk about, there's a whole section of my notes here. We could talk about how you don't get to capitalism without slavery, chattel slavery. You just don't get there. Or um, you don't get to capitalism without, in the 16, 1700s, England passing a lot of enclosure laws. People used to live on a commons in small rural villages. They had property they would raise their, their cows and sheep on and plant things on, and they would go hunting in, in public lands. But then the state and the Bank of England worked to pass laws that enclosed that commons land, made it private property, shut down places, it made it illegal to hunt, illegal to fish. And so how do you get people who live um, communally, who don't work 16 hours a day, who get to see their family all the time, who have these strong kinship bonds, how do you get them to give up all that, move to London, work 16 hours a day and live in 800 square feet with 13 other people? Well, pass some laws. You pass some laws. So I, I say this to say, one of the things I want to look at with you all is what is the work our democracy is doing and who is it doing it for? I would contend 
that Malin reigns in such a way, its regnancy is in such a way that democracy serves the, the proliferation of wealth and it serves very few people. That's, that's what I would hold out to you. And so I, I can over answer any question, Katie, but one of the other things that is fascinating to me is I, I mean, I was, a, I was a US history major, so like I really live in the history. But one of the things that I'm discovering is the stories we tell about the American Revolution aren't the whole story. One of those stories is that why did all these immigrants come to America? Well, laws bring passed to close up their farmland and their hunting grounds, and they moved to the city, and this factory wanted to put them to work 16 hours a day to make nothing. And they're like, forget this. I'm, I'm going to go, I got to get out. I got to get on a boat and travel six weeks and who knows if I'll make it, but it's better than doing this. And then they get to the U.S. and it's the same thing. You've got really wealthy landowners, Thomas Jefferson and others, who control all the capital, all the means of production, and they're shoved into factories. And part of the brilliance, if you want to call it that, of how, of how the framers of the U.S. Constitution, Declaration of Independence, they were able to galvanize the feelings of discontent among all these poor people, use language that gave them hope, but then not give them really any power. Able to recruit their angst into fighting the British. The Brits, the Brits are the people who are really the bad guys, the baddies. But then when they write the constitution, uh, they don't get to vote. They don't get, they don't get, if you don't own land, you don't vote. 90% of the people who lived in the US at the time of the revolution didn't own land. So, so democracy, I think, among other things, has functioned as a ruse, a panacea. You have power. You live in a democracy. Do I? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Laura. Society to Yeah. Yeah. Laura's saying, how do we get here? And this is the history I, I have in my notes. Um, this is one of the ways that Mammon rules is it sets up the potential for wealth as the orienting virtue. It's the telos that out telos every other telos, <laughs> right? And so there simply was too much money to be made, Laura, for it not to happen. That's one of the ways to tell the story. Now, Goodchild talks in, the, in his section about how the Bank of England the king wanted to go to war and the bank created a loan. And then they're like, well, look at this. There's, we're making money off of money we don't have. Well, let's keep doing that, <laughs> right? And, and how debt then, and we'll talk more about debt, how debt is inseparable from all this that we're doing. Like it's inseparable, like understanding how debt works and what the kind of slavery it creates. And, the kind, and it creates slavery for people who are in debt, but it also creates profit for people who are enslaving us, right? So 
One way to say it is there was just too much money to be made. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very complicated. So I'm tr I'm not. I, I don't want to give simplistic answers to this. So Larry and then Isaiah. Thanks, Laura. My question is about the the meaning of the word mammon as Jesus used it and as the people have heard it. Like for example, when I hear the word money today, I it doesn't have a it's morally neutral to me. It's just a tool. So when I hear the word lucre, I think of filthy lucre, you know, which kind of has a negative. Oh yeah. Yeah. Compared to the word, so I'm wondering like as he used the word at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Larry's asking when Jesus spoke about money or mammon, was it a negative thing or was it a reality? Just, just kind of a reality. Like, um, and Isaiah, you were asking about this on, we were texting about this. Like how, how does mammon function differently in Jesus's day than it does our own? Cause Jesus did not live in a neoliberal finance driven capitalistic culture. Um, um, I'll, yes. In, how do I even begin this? So in Jesus's day, there wasn't, there, there was, there was not this complex market that we have. There was exchange. There were loans, right? But money wasn't made on money like today. So money was made essentially. I mean, this is one of the reasons why tax places were hated. They, they extorted people for money. And then people like Herod and some of the Jerusalem elite and others owned 50 to 75% of the land in Israel. And so 95% of Israelites in Jesus's day were destitute, impoverished. They may own their land, but their taxes were so high they could barely farm enough to feed their families. And if you didn't own land, which was at least half, if not more, you were basically a serf, right? Uh, and so people got wealthy in Jesus's day from stealing and some kind of extortion, bribes, uh, getting more money from collecting taxes, etc. That's how people got wealthy. That's how people <sighs> inheriting the wealth based upon bribes and extortion <laughs> and, and stealing. And so we'll see today in Matthew 6, when Jesus says you can't serve God and money, what is serve? How do we serve money? And then what examples does he use? He uses food, drink, and clothes. And he's telling people who are impoverished and destitute, don't worry about food, drink, and clothes. So we got already have some massive translation work to do because we're not, nobody in this room is in the, you know, bottom 50% of the world in terms of how we're doing. So there's some translation there, Larry. But what Jesus is advocating for, I'm going to preach about this later, so I'll just say it one sentence. Jesus is advocating that his kingdom, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. The righteousness of the kingdom is a justice that pushes out and back against the way of mammon. It's not one of scarcity, accumulation, acquisition, using people. It's one of thanksgiving and gratitude, generosity abundance. So seeking God's justice is a social political reality. 
And we've take, we've made it as like a God's righteousness lives in my heart. Yeah. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Our hearts are involved, but it has to be because our hearts have already been formed by this institution system we live in. Nobody says God's kingdom is systemic justice. And we know how systemic injustice forms and shapes us. Yeah, Isaiah. Uh, this is more just like a comment or like a personal like resonance, but like uh, when you say that like how do we get here and money becomes like the telos, that like how telos is like the, the end, the purpose that our purpose is all purposes. Yeah. Like Good Child talks about this, I think, and I really resonate because like it feels like it's impossible to untangle yourself. From money as like the telos, like I think all the time about oh, there's these things I want to do. And like, how do I do there's these things I want to do for people, or like there's things I want to change with society. Like, how do I get there? I need to get money <laughs> like to, to be able to accomplish this, right? Like, yeah. there's no way to accomplish good things it feels like without money. Um, and so like yeah. you said, how do we get your understanding? Like, I feel like part of that. Like, yeah. like I'm just like, even in my good things, I'm just like driving it system. Yes. Anybody, can anybody relate to that? Yeah. Isaiah, Isaiah said, Isaiah said basically, this is the, the hegemony or the control and the power of money is so ubiquitous, so totalizing. How would I even begin to extricate myself? Or I can't even have an imagination for how to do good without money, right? This is important. I, I wanted to frame this at the beginning and I didn't. This is why most Christians don't talk about money. I, I think. Because as soon as you start like pulling on stuff, it's like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I, I'm going to put that vent back down on my floor because I don't want to deal with the, the massive amount of hair and nastiness in the, in the duct, right? I'm just going to put that vent down and feel like it's not there. So mammon is, is uh, massive in its control and power and dominion. So it intimidates us and freaks us out. And then we feel like, you know, that's one. Two, you know, we throw some Dave Ramsey at it right? So here's how you, yeah, debt is awful. Here's how you get out of debt, right? We're not throwing Dave Ramsey at this. If, if you need to get out of debt, I think that's really good, but there's better ways to do it, I think. Three, um, we, we just get aesthetic. Like you got to give up everything and like, you know, be a hermit and like live whatever. Um, I'm, I'm actually, I don't, what, what I want to foment here with us isn't Here's mammon, it's awful. Let's get as far away from it as possible. I want to, I want us to explore and get like deal with the anxiety we feel when we stare at what mammon is doing. Just deal with it. Like let it sit. Let it be. The discouragement, the anxiety, the fear, the frustration, the anger, the fear. Let it be. Just let it be. Build some resiliency. We did this when we talked about white supremacy, which is why we're talking about mammon, by the way. Um, they're connected. Um, and Oppose it, not get away from it, but actually oppose it with the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We can't get far enough away from him and to dethrone it, but we can oppose it. And we'll see throughout Lent, Jesus, Jesus is speaking against the dehumanizing, degrading, Death and destruction of mammon all the time, all the time. And we've evacuated Christians in the West. We've evacuated that as the realm of our dominion. And part of that's just, we've been compromised, you know, 
and colonized. We've been colonized by mammon. And, and we're gonna learn how to notice that colonization, decolonize our imaginations from mammon and, and learn to oppose it. Yeah, Ryan. Yes. 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 So Ryan, Ryan just said we we were doomed if we try to fight this uh, as isolated individuals, but communities like the Amish, like the Bruderhof, uh, who are cousins to the Amish, like they are they are dwelling in a new social political reality that involves their possessions and their wealth and their money, and they can help fund an imagination for what that looks like. And if we don't if we don't have some kind of corporate togetherness, we're going to get chewed up and spit out. I'm repeating it for the sake of our recording, but I think I heard, did I hear you? Yes. Yeah. Sylvia. So in reading, um, he talks about the importance of knowing the political process and being as opposed to being. And I wonder if, I wonder if that's not the starting point. I wonder if that's not the starting point for how we change our thinking. And that, that, Essential knowledge that I am with from God. See, He's given me this gift to mm -hmm. be myself. Mm -hmm. And that is my value. Mm -hmm. Not anything else that I do. Yeah. Nothing about how I work my business. So I wonder if, if that isn't the starting point for us as a community and as individuals too, because that's individual work. Yeah. I can't say, oh, you're loved by God, and you're made in God's image, yeah. And, yeah. and I can very easily not take that as my own. Yeah. So I just some thoughts about that. I wonder what you think about what you Yeah, I, I, I don't know if you all had a chance to read McCabe. Um, I'm, I'm going to incorporate a lot of what he said in my sermon today. Um, I think it's brilliant. I think he's helped me see that passage in a way that doesn't relegate most of my life outside of the religious or spiritual sphere. But yes, to say we have a communal thing and to say isolated individuals can't hack it doesn't mean there's not personal work to do. The person though, what is a person? What are they for? We want to answer that based upon the kingdom of God, not, a, not based upon liberalism or neoliberalism or modernity or secularism, right? Because those want to script us too. So yes, I'm preaching about this today, Sylvia, and calling us into the economy, a Eucharist economy. Yes, it starts with the love of God. It starts with us. Um, you mentioned life as a gift, living in a gift economy.
Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, Ellie. Ellie's saying like sometimes we get this itch to do something, and so you know the guy leading this thing is saying, "Well, this is why you should give ten percent, or this is why you shouldn't buy a house more than two hundred thousand dollars, or this is why you only save this much, or you invest in these stocks, or you know those kinds of prescriptive things." But I'm, I trust those things will come. I'm, I'm more interested in like letting the losses come, like you said, Ellie, because sometimes we give four times as much back. Sometimes we give it all away and sometimes we keep it and take care of people. Like, it's just, there's no one size fits all in terms of how do we live faithfully with our money? And I'd rather, I'd rather like foment and agitate for an imagination that wants to oppose mammon by, by pushing against it with the kingdom of God and then letting those kairoses come out. Like you said, you know, well, yes, those carousels lead to like Ellie. Ellie then doesn't say, "I've got this conviction. I'm going to whatever. I don't know, go carbon neutral or something." And 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 instead of Ellie like pushing that on everybody, Ellie Ellie says, "I need you to help me, community, with this, and this is what I'm going to do." And we all then are able to receive what God has for us in that, or not. Maybe there's nothing for me in that, right? The good news is there there is not a shortage of ways to oppose mammon. <laughs> Plenty to go around, right? So the good news is there's enough kairoses for everyone. <laughs> and yeah, I don't want to. Pres- we're not, I, I don't want to prescribe. I will share my conviction as mine, and I invite you to do the same. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, Laura said this is the way we uh, combine the individual and communal. Um, I, I'm okay using the word individual, but I think that because individualism is such a strong power within liberalism, neoliberalism, I typically, I'll, you'll hear me use the word personal because I don't know of a personalism. It's the ism, it's the ism that gets me because I, I think we, there, there needs to be room for persons and persons being persons in a group. But how do we do that? I don't know. My imagination is colonized by neoliberal finance-driven capitalism. Yeah, 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 yeah. You have, you have to, yeah. It's good, Laura. Other ways that you're interacting with this, I know this is a lot, y'all. Other ways, other things you're thinking about, yeah. 
No. Um, something we've been talk talking about, not really negative, but it's just this reality that we are to an extent trapped in this system and if we don't completely remove ourselves from it, which would have like other downsides, we're always going to be implicated in the system to some degree. Um, so I think that's but also kind of helpful moving into things, not have this standard of like, we're going to have these great conversations and we'll be like sharing this. Yes. So that's like not our goal. Yes. Yeah, the comment was that um, the, the, the amount of our complicity in this feels, can feel very like defeating or we can feel desperate, but it's good to recognize that this system, we're not, we're not gonna do a seven weeks class and then you know, change the system. That, um, and I would just tag on to that too, is that this is part of, however you wanna call it, but being white, I'll speak for myself, being a white man in the US uh, who's married and has two kids with a woman, I, this culture is, in society is ordered and normed and shaped for my benefit. I don't have, um, I don't have the culture, cultural, social competency to oppose anything because everything usually works for me. So those, those for whom society doesn't work for, there's a lot of them. Most of them aren't white straight men who are married with two kids. They, like as a survival technique, have to like oppose things and learn to have resiliency and like what you're talking about like this, this isn't gonna be done in my lifetime, but my lifetime is gonna be spent dismantling this. And I think that's something that I want to foment in this room. I need that. I don't have the resiliency for this. I'm gonna preach a sermon and like have it be done. But I think this is a big part of why we're having this conversation is to look each other in the face and go, yeah, this is what life is now. Like, this is what, this is what it means to be a Christian. And we need each other's courage and like perseverance for that, you know, and resiliency. Was I hearing your comment right? Yeah. Yeah. I feel that too. Yeah, Larry. There are there any people groups um, in currently or in history that you think best body to pass down this That's a great question. Larry asks, is there any people groups that best embody uh, the value? And I actually, actually haven't even staked out, like, what does it look like to seek first the kingdom? I haven't really staked that out here. Um, so I just want to be clear. I, we have a lot of work to do, and Jesus is going to teach us about this all through Lent. I, I mentioned the Bruderhof. Ryan mentioned the Amish. Are there other, are there other places that you or people, groups that you know? This is a question for the community, Larry, I think. Who's living this out? So this is, this is, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when Columbus landed in Hispaniola, and the indigenous people there met him. They brought things just to give him. Just giving him things and sharing things with him. 
And Columbus wrote in his diary, like, these people don't understand how valuable this stuff is they're giving me. They will make fine slaves. Like, that's, basically, that's what he said. These people are so giving and so, like, whatever, that we can easily dominate them and use them. So, yeah, I mean, if you read native, Christian native uh, theologians like Randy Woodley and others, they talk about this economy of, like, gift and abundance and life, you know? Even possession, private property. You know, there's, the old, there's the story. I'm not sure how apocryphal it is, but when, when, uh, when a U.S. soldier asked him, uh, a native chief where, where, his, where his tribe, the land his tribe was on, he went like this. And so they basically like drew lines. <laughs> but he just meant all of this, right? So yeah, yeah. Part of, I think that's more in line with how Jesus was teaching and operating than the standard neoliberalistic modern enlightenment way of seeing land, people, possessions. So yeah. Yeah, Marissa and then Katie. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, Marissa. Uh, Marissa is saying like I, I don't want to just um, remove like a, a devotion to Mammon and have something else fill in. You know, I don't want to cast a demon out and have seven replace it. Um, yeah, I have thoughts about that. Ryan, do you want to respond to that directly? Okay, okay. Um, to me, it has to start with us becoming aware of the way that Mammon orients our what we think is good, what we give our time to and attention to and focus. Let me give you like some silly examples. I was raised in a house where it was unfathomable that you would put gas in your car that cost even a penny more from that gas station if you could get to the other gas station too. And so I remember like it being sort of just worked into me that like it's actually really frivolous and dumb to pay an extra 60 cents to fill up your gas tank here if you could drive 15 minutes and save that 60 cents over here, right? I, now, I, I actually have to push against that, Marissa. When, I am, when I'm getting gas in my car, I have to say, this is 60 cents we're talking about. I've learned to value that 60 cents inordinately, right? That's, 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 an, that's one, like just no, like waking up to that a little bit. Um, I think 
just having those kairos has helped. Like, okay, this is one way that mammon's controlling my time and attention and service. And that's religious. It's religious. There's this, um, I'll, I'll share another example. There's this um, psychological experiment. And I first learned about it with kids. You put a kid in a room and on the plate is a marshmallow. And you tell the kid, if you, if you, you can have this marshmallow, but if you wait till I come back in the room, you can have two marshmallows. And then the researcher leaves and the kid's like, you know. Um, all right, so they also do it with adults. Here's $100. If you wait a year, you can have $200. Or you can have $100 today. Now, part of what the free market does is it, and this is where Christianity like was like boom shakalaka with capitalism, is, is it, the free market rewards patience, um, prudence, um, discipline, right? Austerity, right? Self-control. Because why? Because if I do that, I get more, right? That's just sort of normally celebrated as like, that's character, that's good character. But I, I was reading this book, uh, Weird, and, and, and they researched this with people. So people in weird cultures, Western, educated, industrial, rich, democratic, they tend to have more patience. They tend to not eat the marshmallow. They tend to wait for the $200. But I was thinking like, people who aren't from weird cultures don't. They take the hundred dollars. I was just thinking like, I'm robbing my community of a hundred dollars for a whole year. Why? What, what good could we do with it? Who needs it? This is even taking off the table that I don't need that hundred dollars to eat, to stay alive, to bail a loved one out of jail. Right? All kinds of things are built into this experiment that I don't even question unless I have to like, wait, okay, wait, who could I give that hundred dollars to? There are hundreds of thousands of people who will die in the next year because they don't have that hundred dollars. And it's virtuous for me to wait for 200 more. Like these are the kinds of questions that I think Kairos is I would like to start having. I would like to start having these Kairoses. <laughs> you hear me, Lord? Yeah, Leah. That particular example you just gave chimes with something I remember growing up as a missionary kid in Zambia and some other places. I remember hearing people around me talk about like disparaging me about how impatient Zambians were, or like they didn't have this capacity to wait for things or want to think now. Just that was that was the era that I grew up in as an American missionary kid in that place. Um, but realizing like the, the needs and the virtues that underlie that disposition to like, well, we could use this now. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. And we assume those are Christian virtues. Right. And, they, and they trade off of some things, right? Patience isn't bad. Prudence isn't bad, right? But they do get colonized by mammon. That's the thing. That's the thing. Yeah. It actually also reminds me of a story that I was uh, reading to your comments about um, 
what people groups historically or even currently are living or, or living in a, in a society of generosity. Yeah. Um, I was reading Pretty Sweetgrass, um, mm. which is a fabulous book that like almost introduced me to the or gave me the terminology of the ideas of victim economy, but a story that has stayed with me since reading that um, is that, and I'm not going to have to hand it here because that was kind of an indigenous woman who is both uh, a botanist as well as a uh, First Nations person uh, uh, talks about gift economies and talks about how an anthropologist in like the last 20 years has visited uh, this tribe and uh, this man, a hunter, like took down uh, a large bear or like something, like an enormous piece of um, and an anthropologist is like, okay, so what are you going to do with that? Like, how are you going to like preserve it and stuff? And clearly, it's going to last for a very long time. And the guy was like really confused by the question. Mm -hmm. and was like, well, we're going to feast on it today. We're going to eat the land to celebrate the life of the dance. And he's like, yeah, okay, cool. But like, what are you going to do with the extra piece? Like, clearly, Smokey has like plenty of ways to preserve this. He's like, well, I'm going to preserve it in the belly of my daughter. Yeah, because right? <laughs> it goes to the idea of like, no, I don't need to like save it for myself gain for another day. Um, it's it's building that community. It's just scandalous to even say that. Like we're transgressing some commitments we don't even know we've made when we do this, right? Remind me your name. Becca. Becca just shared a story about um, uh, an indigenous person who killed a large animal and a Western person asked them, you know, how are you going to preserve this? And, and the, the hunter said, uh, we're going to feast on it. Yeah, but what about the extra? Where are you going to put the extra? Or how are you going to save up for, you know, the rainy day? And the indigenous person said, I'm going to, I'm going to take, I'm going to store the extra in the belly of my brother. Um, yeah, there's something deep in me that goes, they have some intelligence about the kingdom I don't have. They see what they, they answer the question, what are people for differently than I do? And what is food for? Right? And what is, what is all this for? Yeah, well, we have time for one more, Ryan. And all the ways that those leaders are vulnerable. Yeah. And even with the Jesus and his disciples, the person who told himself first stole the money, the soldier was out first. <coughs> so the only way this really works is if we're okay with the universe in some way. Mm. And if we have a resurrection type of perspective, we're willing to see beyond <coughs> being hurt now as the ultimate problem. Yeah, Brian. Ultimately, um, you know, yes, yes. I, I need to repeat this for the peoples. Uh, Ryan just said, uh, often um, we, don't, we don't dare to oppose mammon and live in a gift economy because uh, it makes us vulnerable, leaves us open to hurt. And even Jesus, the person who took care of the purse was stealing out of it and then sold Jesus out for 30 coins of silver. So like we will get hurt. We will get hurt. Um, but your, your point is like, it's still worth it. 
and, and we do have this hope beyond the hurt that things will be put right. And I will just add to that, Ryan, we got to start naming how mammon hurts us already. Yeah. It's not the choice between being hurt and not. It's we've actually just either been numb to the hurt we receive or we call it good. You know, we call it good. And I, I, think, I think if we open our eyes to there is no hurtless place, then we can have maybe a greater sense of courage and purpose moving into the spaces you're, you're naming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes, a community was not destroyed by somebody uh, misusing money in, in Jesus's community. All right, we are, we are OT and um, there's so much more to talk about. So um, this has been a really stirring first foray into this stuff. And um, just one real quick, uh, one of the things that, one of the ideas I had was to create some um, podcasts where I like talk to you about how this, how the readings and the class is impacting you, how it's reforming the way you see things, the questions you have, the problems you have. If you're, if you're interested in that, like literally it's just like a conversation that we'll put on our podcast feed, but I feel like it, it extends sort of the, lets the community in on more than just me up here but like we get to hear from Ellie, like, okay, so I'm working for this people and I'm doing this thing and I've just bought a house and, you know, and here's the things I'm thinking about and how this is, Good Child said this and it made me think of this. And so if you're interested in that, come see me. You know, I'd love to chat with you um, about it, especially if you know more about economics than I do. Yeah. I'm a pastor, y'all. Um, all right, God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, the um, courage in this room to stare in the face of the beast together. Lord, uh, we need your help. Continue to help us now as we move into Eucharist. Uh, bless your church with the goodness of your spirit, we pray. In your name, Jesus, and for your love's sake, we ask. Amen. Amen.